I'm Stephanie Cox, and this is Mobile Matters. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Gustafson from Microsoft. Aaron is a web standards advocate and has been working on the web for more than two decades. In addition to working closely with the Edge team, Aaron works with partners on progressive web apps with a focus on cross-platform compatibility. He also wrote Adaptive Web Design, a seminal book on progressive enhancement. In this episode, Aaron and I talk a lot about the concept of progressive enhancement and how it's tied to progressive web apps, the significant opportunities available for us with the use of service workers, and what's really happening with Microsoft Edge. And make sure you stick around to the end, where I'll give my recap and top takeaways so that you can not only think about mobile differently, but implement it effectively. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me. You've been working on the web for more than 20 years. Can you tell me how you got started? So um, I was running a music and entertainment magazine back in college, uh, this is in the mid-90s, and decided that I wanted to bring it from being a print thing to being a web thing. And my friend originally helped me to kind of code that up around about 96-ish, something like that. And then after she built the initial version, I kind of took over and to figure out what else I could do with it. And so that was how I started learning to do web stuff. I learned a lot from the source. Uh, the first book I ever got on web design was called Creating and Enhancing, oh, excuse me, Creating and Enhancing Netscape Web Pages, which was kind oh, of wow. funny to look back on. But, uh, but yeah, I started out doing that just kind of for my own magazine that I was running. And then I got my first job out of college in 99, working for the Bradenton Herald in Bradenton, Florida. And I was effectively their content management system. I would go in at like 11 o'clock at night um, and I would take articles out of park documents and I would put them into Dreamweaver templates and fetch them up to the website. There was no editorial oversight as to what I was putting on the, on the web. Like it was, uh, it was pretty crazy. You have such an interesting background of how you got into it. And it's actually kind of similar to mine because the first time I got really into web and web development was school newspaper and then interned at a local paper like the next summer. And they're like, oh, you know, web, you can put things on, you can do, you can use like Dreamweaver or back then um, I remember using like Adobe PageMill. And like, I'm like, you're letting basically a 20 year old do this. Okay. No, it's, it's kind of funny, but I mean, we were the only ones who knew how to do it back then, right? Yep. Um, I mean, we didn't have courses when I, when I was in school. I, I graduated in 99 from college and we didn't have any classes in, in web design or really, I mean, we had computer science classes, but we didn't have anything that was web related. And the only thing that we ended up doing in my college that was web related was a course that I started to teach my friends how to do web design. And my, my school was such that you could actually create your own classes. So. They wanted me to create a class around how to do web design. And so, yeah, that was my, my first thing. But I mean, so many of us from back then were effectively webmasters or the other term webmistresses. <laughs> I remember. Yep. That big one. And yeah, we just kind of learned to do everything. I mean, I even remember doing my first uh, my first full program to, to do the back end of a contact form. Um, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, it is. Looking back at it now. One of the things that I know you're really big on and kind of known for is this idea of progressive enhancement. Can you explain to everyone kind of what you mean by that? Sure, sure. So the idea of progressive enhancement, and this this was coined 2003, I think, by Steve Champion at, at South by Southwest. And the idea of progressive enhancement is that you start with a universally available and accessible baseline experience. So this is something that, that has 
very few technical requirements to being able to access uh, the content and, and use the site and, and perform key tasks. And then you use the different features of the browser, um, you use kind of different CSS selectors or method detection in JavaScript, or now you can actually do you know, at supports and stuff like that to, to basically determine you know, what does this browser support? What am I capable of, of delivering to it as an enhanced experience? And then you provide that better experience to people who can actually take advantage of it. Uh, but ultimately, it's about creating experiences that are available and accessible to anyone, no matter what device they happen to be on, what platform they happen to be on. And it really brings together a lot of the things that we as an industry have been talking about over the last 15, 20 years, which is accessibility, talking about responsive design, talking about uh, you know, a, a UX that can work for everyone, talking about inclusive design. All of these very much play into progressive enhancement as a philosophy. And really, it was, it was about kind of turning the tables on this idea of graceful degradation, which is where you built for the latest and greatest browsers. And then you just assumed that anybody who didn't have those browsers was going to get a crappy experience. So, you know, you built a flash site and you had no fallback for anybody who didn't have a flash plugin. Or you, you blocked somebody from being able to access their bank account because, you know, God forbid they weren't on the browser that you tested in. So progressive enhancement is sort of, I, know, I, I characterize it as a, a rejection of lazy developing because it's, it's not about, you know, it's not about you as a developer. It's about actually thinking about the, the real people that are accessing our content and that need to use our services and making sure that we provide great experiences to them. I absolutely love the idea that it's a rejection of lazy developing. That should be a shirt. Um, <laughs> That is absolutely brilliant. When you think about progressive enhancement, are you seeing a lot of other companies adopt that kind of line of thinking in their business? Yeah, I think, you know, our our medium is kind of an interesting one in that we constantly have new people coming onto the web and starting to build for the web. And we all come from you know, various backgrounds. A lot of us self-taught, some of us now coming out of things like boot camps. Um, or coming out of traditional computer science degrees. And there's no you know, single curriculum that kind of defines what it is to be a web designer or a web developer. And then at the same time, you have all of these individuals and companies who are trying to solve their own needs and, and creating new frameworks and new ways of, of building things. And everything's changing so rapidly. I, I I feel like it's sort of a pendulum swinging back and forth. I feel like you know, as new things come about, we gravitate towards the new shiny and then the pendulum swings the other way and we realize that, hey, you know what, that new shiny thing isn't really doing everything that we need it to do in terms of lower end devices or, or dealing with accessibility issues and that sort of stuff. And, and so then we, we start to like rein it in and, and actually make it work for everybody. But I mean, I've, I've seen that numerous times over the years. And we certainly saw that with the, the advent of Ajax when all of a sudden everything was going to be delivered via JavaScript. And, you know, if anything happened with a plugin or your JavaScript not being, not being uh, delivered entirely because of a, a network issue or a CDN issue or something like that, the entire site was hosed. And that's actually happened numerous times. I remember Docker uh, Media, when they were still around, they had, they launched their, or they launched a new platform, I think it was back in 2011. And when they flipped the switch for all of the sites in Docker Media, which for those who, who don't remember Docker Media, it's effectively all blogs, right? So this is this is just content sites, not even talking about applications. But 
they built their entire framework to rely on JavaScript to pull in all of the content. And there was an error in the JavaScript code when they flipped the switch and turned it on for all the sites and every site was dead. Like they, they had headers and they had navigation that didn't work, but there was no content. Some of them had a little spinning loading icon, but nothing was ever coming. And, uh, oh you know, that's, goodness. yeah, no, it's talk about embarrassing, right? Like that's horrible, but there've been, there've been other examples of this over the years. I mean, jQuery, um, has their CDN for serving up jQuery. And there was a, a time when Sky, uh, which is a big broadband provider in the UK, they actually flagged jQuery served from the jQuery CDN as malware for about a, about a day. And so every one of their customers in the UK, like any site that was reliant on that copy of, J, of jQuery was basically dead in the water. And so, you know, I think we, jump in with both feet to new technologies and new approaches and what's fun and you know what we get excited about showing off to our friends that we've done but it's not always the uh the best thing for our users and so you know, we need to i think we need to kind of take a step back and revisit the things that we're building in order to make sure that they do work for as many people as possible i can't even imagine it those two situations you talked about, like if that happened to me, I can't even imagine the amount of panic that would ensue. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And there, there was another example, a, a friend of mine uh, alerted me to on Twitter when, um, when Google started to, uh, they, they basically stopped trusting uh, certain semantic SSL certificates because they had, I remember they had had like some sort of trust issue with, with uh, SSL certificates issued by semantic before a certain day entered it. But anyway, they, they put out the new version of Chrome that no longer trusted those certificates. And if you were serving your, uh, let's say, your CDN for all of your JavaScript and your CSS was coming from a server with that, and your normal site was on SSL2, if your normal site's SSL certificate was fine, it would show that page, but then it wouldn't be able to load any of those assets because they weren't secure anymore. So again, like... The, the web is fragile. And I think it's important to kind of recognize the fragility and, and not really see it as something that needs to be overcome, but just something that needs to be considered. I mean, just stuff happens, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's not always the, uh, the happy path that our users end up on. And you know, the people, those of us who are building the web, we often have really fast connections and really high end machines and stuff like that. And, we don't always take the time to think about what the experience is for our actual users. Well, not just the experience, but all in the actual conditions in which they're going to consume it, too. Yeah, absolutely. So thinking about progressive enhancement, how does that relate to another term we've heard a lot about lately, which is progressive web apps? So uh, progressive being the first word of progressive web apps is actually a, a call out to progressive enhancement because the idea with uh, progressive web apps or PWAs is that they're an enhancement of an existing website. So whatever your website is, whether it's a blog or whether it's a magazine or a, an actual piece of like software as a service or something like that, it exists on the web and that's great. And then the, the sort of pieces of, of PWA, the three technical linchpins are running on HTTPS, uh, so being a secure site. Uh, the second one is having a web app manifest, which sort of defines the meta information about your site, so icons you want to use and, and that sort of stuff. And then the third piece is, is using a service worker to provide an offline experience. But all of those pieces are effectively enhancing the 
baseline experience that you're having on that website. So they can enhance it through making it able to be installed, for instance. So you can install currently on Android from Chrome and from uh, Samsung Internet, Firefox, and Opera. In the desktop world, you can install from Chrome on Windows and I believe on Linux and Mac OS, you can do it as well, um, although I think that's still in beta. And then uh, Edge will be able to, to do install from the browser on the desktop as well. And um, Microsoft also supports delivering WAs via the Microsoft Store, which also opens up a lot of opportunities for, for time and deeper with the, uh, the operating system as well. I know you just mentioned kind of the three key technical components of our PWA, but what do you think the biggest feature of a PWA is that, is that you're most excited about? I mean, to me, the, the opportunities that are available to us with Service Worker are pretty impressive. So for those who aren't familiar, Service Worker is a type of web worker, which means it's a, it's a, a self-contained script that, that runs kind of on its own thread. And it is basically your own man in the middle. So you can control all network requests, anything that's, that's, that's being requested from your site. You can intercept that request and do something with it. And the other sort of piece of that is it has access to the cache API. So in the, the traditional browser world, as a developer, you didn't really have much control over how your, your browser, your, your, or your user's browser rather, actually caches information. I mean, we had ways to bust caches and stuff like that, but it wasn't fantastic. It wasn't very, uh, there wasn't a lot of control, let me say. But with Service Worker, we actually have this very low-level API that lets us control what is being put into the cache, what is being pulled out of the cache. And using uh, a Service Worker, you can do just a ton of different really interesting things with your requests to the network. So, for instance, when your service worker is first installed, you could pre-cache um, all of the core assets for your site. So your, your baseline, JavaScript, CSS, et cetera, you know, maybe your icons and things. And then those will be available offline as well, right? Because you can, you can set up your service worker to attempt to make a request to the network, or you could make it go to the cache first. And then if it can't get something in the cache, it could go to the network. There, there are a bunch of different ways, much different permutations for for the sorts of logic, but you can effectively provide a completely offline experience for somebody. So uh, you mentioned adaptive web design, the book that I wrote. The first edition of that is actually online for free, and and, and people can, can go to adaptivewebdesign.info to read that. But I turned that into a PWA, and I added a service worker that basically caches the entire book offline for you, so that when the service worker installs, it goes ahead and it, it saves all of the individual chapters, which are HTML files, and saves the, the various images for it and the videos and stuff like that so that you have it to read whenever. And it doesn't matter if you're on a plane or if you go through a tunnel, you'll always have access uh, to that information. So there's that sort of stuff you can do. You can do things like, I don't know, if, if let's say you automatically convert all of the images on your site uh, from JPEGs and PNGs into WebP format, which is a a lot smaller in most cases, uh, pretty much all cases, but not all browsers support WebP. Instead of doing some you know, convoluted uh, hoops, either in markup using the picture element or in JavaScript to figure out, okay, can I send a WebP? In your service worker, you could actually convert those requests for PNG and JPEG files, you know, even within particular directories and swap them out for requests for a WebP and return the WebP instead. 
you can when you're when you know you're on a limited bandwidth connection or a, a, a paper bit connection, a metered connection. Instead of loading images, maybe you load a an SVG file that you already have cached that's a placeholder, and then you allow somebody to decide whether they want to load all of your imagery down because you know they're they're paying for each of those graphics to be downloaded to them. Um, so there's lots of cool things that you can do with service workers. I'm glad you mentioned service workers because they're probably my favorite part of PWAs too. I just think that they're really almost a little bit of like the secret sauce of what makes a PWA, I think, just really special and different than what we've thought of as web apps for the last decade. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's there's a bunch of other stuff that's sort of coming down uh, the pike in the in the future. If you've taken a look at the, um, there's sort of a, a categorization within the Chromium project of Project Fugu APIs, which are all about bringing sort of more desktop and traditional software development apps, native app uh, features over to the web. So some examples of that are like share. So being able to share to, instead of sharing to a native app, sharing to a PWA. So we actually have an implementation of that on the the Windows side using the WinRT APIs for the Twitter PWA. So if you've installed the Twitter PWA from the Microsoft Store, you can actually click on images or uh, even certain movie file types um, within your file system, and you can share them directly to Twitter from there uh, or share links and and that sort of stuff too. But those capabilities are starting to come to the web as well, which is pretty awesome. So there's a lot of stuff that that we're trying to to sort of bridge the the gap between what what you traditionally thought you needed to do native development for and and bringing that to the web and really supercharging websites and, and web applications. Since you brought that up, then do you think that at some point PWAs and the web in general can replace what we've traditionally done in native mobile apps? So I don't, I don't think 100% we will replace native apps um, and games and stuff like that with PWAs. But for you know the the vast majority of what's out there on the web, which is you know a lot of forums, a lot of spreadsheets, and and things like that, and just you know a lot of magazines and. and video sites and things like that, those can absolutely all be done as PWAs. And in fact, Hulu is right now in the process of rolling out a PWA version of their app for to replace the, the one that's traditionally been in the Microsoft Store. And I, I know Netflix has done some experimentation in this space as well. And there are other, other media companies out there that are starting to look to PWAs as an option because they already have web teams, right? They've already got people who are building a great web experience for their users. And if they can make that do double or triple duty, uh, kind of double down on that investment and enable users on any platform to use that same source code effectively to to use their service, that's a huge win. And I'd also argue that from a business perspective, it's a lot easier to hire web folks than it is to hire native folks. There's just there's a lot more of them. There's a lower barrier to entry to, to working on the web. So there are a lot of reasons that it, it may make sense to migrate to, to PWAs, especially if you've got multiple native apps and a website and they all effectively look the same and do the exact same thing. You're just, you know, you're, you're creating more work for yourself to have all of these different versions. And unless there's, there's some specific reason, you know, you only get you know, a, a particular key interaction for your user experience in, you know, iOS when you're, you're actually using Swift, then, you know, maybe you can make a case for it. But if 
what you're doing is what, the same thing as what you're doing on the web, then I think it just makes a lot of sense to, to double down on that web investment. I think you bring up a good point, though, about this idea that web developers are a, le- a little easier to hire than native, because a lot of times with native, you mentioned Swift as an example, I've rarely met true native app developers that do both iOS and Android. Typically, they pick they kind of pick one and that's their area of expertise, or sometimes they might be cross-platform and do um, something like Xamarin or something like that. But for the most part, web developers, even though there's not necessarily a way that they're all trained the same, there's kind of the same skill set that you get with a web developer that doesn't require, you're not usually an expert on one operating system versus another, you're just an expert on the web itself. So if someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm thinking about creating my first PWA, what advice are you going to give them or what direction do you point them in? I mean, I think a really easy on-ramp is uh, pwabuilder.com, which uh, Jeff Burkhoff, uh, is a colleague of mine, and it's sort of a, a system for helping you get started really easily. Another recommendation is Jeremy Keith's book, Going Offline, is tremendously useful when it comes to kind of understanding how service workers work and even some of the, the things that kind of take for granted with newer people that you know they may know how promises work, but Jeremy's book actually doesn't assume that you know how promises work. So it actually walks you through how promises work and what that means in terms of the promise-based architecture of the batch and cache APIs within service worker. And he's got a bunch of really helpful examples in there that you could put to use right away. And it's it's probably a, a two, maybe three hour read if you if you were to go through and do all the code samples um, and, and follow along coding it. But it's it's really easy to, to follow along with and really easy to get up to speed with what service worker can do. Now that you've given some advice, what is the area that you find that most people struggle with when they implement their first PWA? I think that we're all struggling to figure out caching. I, I think, and, and I say this because it is sort of a, a tremendous opportunity and a privilege to be able to control what's stored on a user's disk. And I think that we can abuse that privilege. You know, we can, we can cache way too much. You know, if, if we were to cache absolutely every page that somebody visited on let's say, a, a very high image uh, site, maybe like a, a, a store site or something like that, if you're caching absolutely every asset, like you're going to fill up their disk space really quickly, and, and that just feels abusive to me. We're, we're given this opportunity to kind of play in the same sandbox, and if, if we're not playing nicely, we're going to end up you know, causing, I think, some issues. I mean, I, would, I look back to keyword stuffing and, and some of the things that people used to do to try and boost their their SEO rankings back in the, the early days of the web and how that basically ruined the accessible experience for a lot of users. So things like display none and generated content and stuff like that, they've all been abused and basically those toys get taken away from us, right? In in various ways. And so I think we need to be really careful about how we're playing with somebody's disk space. And, you know, the reality is that not everybody has, you know, half a terabyte of disk space, certainly not on their phone and definitely not on sort of the, what we would consider in the, in the Western world, low end phones that a lot of people in 
India and China and Africa are relying on to be able to access the web. And if we want our products to truly be able to go anywhere and address as wide a potential audience as possible, we need to play nice. Right? We need to need to be making really smart decisions that are always erring in our users' favor rather than ours. I love that you brought up the idea of not abusing caching as an example, because I find that that's what happens a lot of times when new technology comes out. And I've done this myself, right, where you get so excited about it and we do things like keyword stuffing and just really trying to take advantage of it. And then big technology companies, right, like Google is a great example, especially with things that they did around like mobile getting and some things around search, you know, years ago, is they have to really kind of like slap our hands and tell us you couldn't make good choices. So now we no longer allow you to make choices. Got to play well, got to play well with the toys or the toys get taken away. Yes. And ultimately, it's for the good of the web. I mean, it was it. It is. It's, it's not you know Google being a jerk about it. It's you know we we were abusing the the privilege, and you know, we got shut down. Now Microsoft has been, I think, a big proponent of PWAs and made you know a pretty big strategic decision to make that a crucial part of how they've thought about the store and just Windows 10. So can you talk a little bit about? You know, what is Microsoft doing around PWAs for those that don't know? And why is that such a big, a big deal? I want to kind of take a step back a little bit in, in sort of history of Microsoft and its relationship to the web. I'm, I'm going to ignore IE6 um, and that's sitting on the shelf for as long as it did. But so there was this concept that, if I remember correctly, debuted in Windows 7 called Pin Sites. Um, and not a whole lot of sites took advantage of it, but Basically, what it allowed you to do is to pin a particular website to your taskbar. And then once you had that, you had the ability to do a couple of interesting things like create shortcuts, shortcuts within the context menu. Uh, so when you right click the icon, you could jump immediately to, to portions of uh, a website or a web app, which was kind of cool. And then when Windows 8 came along, they actually began supporting HTML, CSS, and JavaScript as a means of building native apps for Windows, which, I mean, given the time, that was pretty revolutionary. I think the the only people that may have beat Microsoft to it at that point was, well, Adobe was doing that through Adobe Air, and then Palm had their, uh, or their WebOS, which was entirely based on web technologies as well. But they were the first really big operating system to say, you know what, this this web stuff, if you know this, you can build software with it. And, and we're going to support that. Then when Windows 10 came along, they created this notion of hosted web apps, uh, or HWAs, as they called them. This was before PWA existed as a term. And the idea was that you could effectively wrap your website in a native shell and not only could you do that, which, I mean, you've been able to do that sort of in iOS and Android and stuff using web views, but not only that, but once you do that and have it in kind of the supposed to web app shell, we're going to enable you to do a heck of a lot more. So they did things like removing your uh, storage limits that you would normally have as a website within the browser, right? They opened up access to the WinRT API, so all of the functionality, basically, that, that's available to a native UWP-based Windows app in the store would also be available to your website when you were installed in Windows. And so they, they were smart about it. They namespaced it, so it was window.capital-windows, 
uh, was the namespace, and they had all of these additional APIs that you could use to access you know, richer interfaces within the operating system. So maybe accessing contacts or calendar, or um, you could even provide instructions to Cortana to, to teach her new skills, which is kind of cool. Um, and so then PWAs sort of came, came along, and, and that term was coined, and that very much felt like a natural evolution of where Microsoft was going with hosted web apps. And so, you know, once we got the, the necessary technical underpinnings to get Service Worker implemented in Edge and such, uh, we shipped that as part of the, uh, the hosted web app shell, which we called WWA Host. And that then made it possible for, for PWAs to actually be in the store and have offline experiences and stuff like that. And we've seen a couple of of companies take advantage of that. So Twitter was probably one of our, our earliest big names to come into the store and they actually used their PWA, which used to be at mobile.twitter.com, but they're actually slowly replacing the proper twitter.com with the PWA. But they used that mobile experience and brought that to replace their native app because that app just it wasn't getting the love that it needed, right? It wasn't getting updated. They hadn't been able to do the incre- increased um, character count and stuff like that yet. Um, and there were a bunch of other features that they wanted to bring to it, but it just they didn't have a dedicated team to work on Windows Native. So, so they replaced their app. Uber was also basically they're like, you know what? We don't we can't support this you know, Uber um, UWP app in the store, so we're going to pull it. I had a, a conversation with them and showed them really quickly how they could take their PWA and just replace it in the store. And they were like, that's awesome. Let's do that. And so they, they just replaced it rather than removing it from the store. They just went ahead and swapped it out. And there have been a bunch of companies that have been kind of looking at that as, as an opportunity or who now see an opportunity in, in the Windows store. So Trivago wasn't in the Windows store and they decided to come to the Microsoft store, sorry, the Microsoft store. And so they came to the, the Microsoft store as a PWA. And so, yeah, we're, we're definitely, you know, all in on progressive web apps and, and trying to figure out how we can make them more powerful and, you know, as good of an option for building modern software as uh, any native platform for most things. Since you mentioned a few brands, do you have a favorite PWA that you personally love? I use the Twitter one all the time, uh, to be honest. It's, it's a great, uh, a great PWA. I use it on my, Windows machine, obviously, I use it on my Mac as well. Um, I installed it via Chrome on my Mac, so I use that one. I use it on my phone. I swapped out the native Android app for the, the PWA. I think that one's fantastic. Instagram has a PWA. Oddly, it does some weird things. Like you can't actually use it like you would use the normal Instagram app if you're in a large screen. <laughs> so if you're on a, if you're on a small screen or you you um, go into like a mobile emulator mode in your dev tools, you can actually get the PWA experience of Instagram on your desktop, but otherwise you just get kind of a read-only view, which is weird. But uh, but it's pretty cool that they're doing it. I, I think they've done a fantastic job, not only with the, the PWA itself, but with sort of that, that deeper integration and starting to, to think about how can this, how can this app do more and, and feel more native-like. So we've talked about progressive enhancement and PWAs. The, one of the last topics I want to talk to you about is Microsoft Edge. So I know that's another part of your role at Microsoft. For everyone that's unfamiliar, can you give us just a, like kind of an update on what's going on with Microsoft Edge? There's been some big news in the last few months about it. Yeah, so um, we recently announced that we are going to be switching the, the sort of the rendering engine and the underpinnings of Edge 
over to Chromium. And that was kind of a big deal because when, when we moved away from IE and built Edge, we very much wanted to create a, a modern uh, web browser, right? We wanted to, to pull out all of the old proprietary stuff that didn't make sense, all the legacy stuff. And we wanted to focus on building just a, a lean browser. And I, I think we did a really good job of that. But I mean, the reality is that there are an awful lot of developers out there in sort of the, the web that are solely focused on building experiences for Chrome. And that puts every other browser, if it's, if it's Edge, if it's Firefox, if it's Safari, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all at a disadvantage because those developers are only coding to that one browser, um, which honestly reminds me a lot of the old IE6 days when everybody was, was coding to IE6 and saw how well that went. But um, we uh, we saw this as an opportunity to participate in, a, in an open source project that has a really good foundation and work with a company that many of us have you know, a really good working relationship with other folks who work on, on the Chrome browser um, and to use this as, an, as a way to just build a, like focus our time on building a great browser and great experiences for our users without having to spend so much time trying to mimic what Chrome was doing because developers weren't paying attention to Edge. And so, I mean, my my hope for it is that we end up kind of going the path that VS Code did. If you remember back to when VS Code came out, people were like, oh gosh, why, like nobody asked for this. Why Why did you do this? There's already Atom. Like you guys are just building on top of Atom. Why is that interesting? And then, you know, fast forward to today and VS Code is, is probably one of the top uh, text editors that's out there that people are using. And I mean, I don't, I don't know that Edge will be the top browser that everybody's using, but I mean, I think open source has a lot of power. And I think being able to build on top of a, a powerful, robust platform with a great ecosystem is only going to help Edge be better and help us to focus on creating great user experiences, creating better ways of interacting with the web. And, you know, to me, I, you know, all of a sudden I get to start thinking about, you know, what is, you know, not, not what new features do we need to add to service workers so that we're uh, on par with what Chrome's doing, but I can focus on, you know, what are sort of the next generation behaviors that I want to enable websites to do. And I love being able to, to think more forward and not have to necessarily be feeling like we're playing catch up a lot. Plus, I think there's a lot that we can bring to the Chromium project. There's There's been some um, I mean, there's some awesome accessibility people at, at Chrome, but not every part of Chrome is terribly accessible. The dev tools have some accessibility issues. So we're working on, on bringing some accessibility, but some better accessibility to the dev tools and um, looking to make contributions in that space as well. So I, I think there's a lot that we can do to help all Chromium-based browsers. It's not just about sort of grabbing the Chromium code base and saying, okay, we're going to, thanks for building this. We're going to go off over here and do our own thing. But we're actually in in it to play in the open source world and to contribute back to Chromium so that everybody gets uh, the improvements. And we're all working together collaboratively to make the web better. I think that's one of the things to me that's most exciting about kind of where the web's headed is the amount of collaboration that seems to be happening across, you know, just all the different big tech players on really pushing the web forward. I feel like it's been really beautiful to see that happen in the last few years. I know it was happening a lot before then, but not the same extent, or maybe people weren't as public about it. But to me, I, I'm just excited about what that means for all of us as we start to use really the best minds coming together to kind of challenge what can the web do? How are we going to do it? How can we work together to kind of push it forward? 
Final question. If you look into a crystal ball and you look at where the future of mobile and the web is headed, what are you most excited about? Gosh, let's see. I, I think what's got me most excited is the future of, of sort of headless UIs, voice-based user experiences. I feel like we're just starting to scratch the surface with smart speakers, but we're not really there yet. I mean, none, if you think about it, none of the smart speakers yet can actually be used as a browser. But once you have the ability to actually have Siri, Alexa, Cortana, whoever read from the web, that opens up a whole new way of interacting with the stuff that we've built. After I interviewed Jeff Bertoff on last week's episode, he recommended that I talk to Aaron, and I'm so glad I did, everyone. He has so much insight into what's really happening on the web and was a really great perspective on how we should think about the user experience. Now, let's get to my favorite part of the show, where we take the education and apply it to your business. There are so many great insights from my conversation with Aaron that can really help transform how you think about mobile. Let's dive into my top three takeaways. First, I previously mentioned how PWAs are really an evolution of technology, and it was great to hear another layer of that history and story from Aaron in regards to progressive enhancement. Prior to my conversation with Aaron, I honestly hadn't heard the term progressive enhancement before, even though I've probably been using some of the concepts behind it for a while. I absolutely loved how he said progressive enhancement is basically the rejection of lazy development. How awesome is that? It really needs to be on a t-shirt. And he's right, everyone. All of us should be using progressive enhancement when we think about designing any experience because we truly need to make sure it's accessible to everyone regardless of their device, operating system, location, etc. It also means that we have to have a shift in our mindset that some of us previously have been thinking about developing for the latest and greatest and or the largest percentage of our users, and we don't worry about the rest. Whereas progressive enhancement really challenges us to find ways to bring an exceptional experience to literally everyone. And I believe that's the bar we all need to be striving to achieve. Next, one of the benefits of PWAs compared to native mobile is really the skill set that's needed to develop a PWA. Let's think about native mobile app development for a second. You typically have a separate development team for iOS than Android, and it's rare to find one that does both. And as Aaron mentioned, it's actually a lot harder to find native mobile app developers than it is web development talent. Now, on the flip side, there's a large pool of talented web developers out there that you could use to develop a PWA. And personally, I think this is one of the most overlooked benefits of progressive web apps. Don't get me wrong, there's a ton of functionality-related benefits that are truly changing the future of mobile and web, but we can't underestimate the importance of being able to use a web developer for a PWA and the impact that can have on your business, especially since most of us already have web devs today. Finally, if your business isn't into high gaming, and I'm talking high-end gaming, everyone, then it's time for you to start developing your first PWA. No more excuses. In fact, if you already have an existing native mobile app and a web property that basically does the same thing, it's time to start there. Develop one PWA to replace both of them. You're going to get all the benefits of a PWA and less upkeep required. Now, here's my challenge for the week. If you haven't personally used a PWA yet, then it's time to immediately go experience one. I recommend taking a look at the PWAs for Twitter, Pinterest, Starbucks, just as a good starting point. They do a really great job of the PWA experience. Now, there are countless PWAs out there that exist for a number of major consumer brands, and that number is growing literally every single day. So try one out as a consumer. See what you think of the experience. I bet it's going to cause you to want to build your first PWA. I'm Stephanie Cox, and you've been listening to Mobile Matters. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. 
Until then, be sure to visit Lumivate.com and subscribe to get more access to thought leaders, best practices, and all things mobile.